Welcome to the debate at Newsweek. I'm Andrew Tallman. Today we're going to be talking about the blockbuster settlement in the Fox News versus Dominion Voting Systems uh, lawsuit. We'll also talk about whether there's socialism in the California electric rate tier structure and trigger warnings. Are they appropriate for difficult content in college courses? Cornell weighs in and we'll talk about it here on the debate. Joining me today, we have Rakeem Brooks, the president of the Alliance for Justice Action Campaign in Washington, D.C., and Ari Hoffman, host of the Ari Hoffman Show on Talk Radio 570 KVI in Seattle. Ari, Rakeem, welcome back to the debate. Great to be here. Yeah, great to be back. So good to have you. So interestingly, the last time we had you guys on about a month ago, we were talking about the Fox Dominion lawsuit and the potential. And of course, your background, Rakeem, fairly close to the lawyers who were involved in this particular case. So let's start with you. How surprised were you? I won't ask if I'll ask how surprised and maybe the answer is not. Were you that all of a sudden delay, delay Monday and then Tuesday, all of a sudden announcement, it's all over three quarters of a billion dollars. Boom, zip, done. I was not surprised in that cases settled fairly often in our country. So that was wasn't what was surprising. What was surprising was the size of the settlement, which suggested that Fox really appreciated just how much liability they were potentially on the hook for. And when we discussed it the last time, I really made the point that Fox had done something quite awful and it damaged the reputation of a major company. And I think once they looked the evidence in the eyes themselves after all the depositions, they concluded that this was just not a fight worth having, particularly not with my old colleagues who are exceptional attorneys. It it strikes me as Fox saying, oh, my God, this could be so much worse for us than just three quarters of a billion dollars. Is that how you read this? Yeah, exactly right. As I said, my colleagues at Sussman Godfrey were among the best trial lawyers in the country. They live to go to trial, which is an unusual thing. They're plaintiff's attorneys sort of by nature. And so even though they do some defense side work uh, and I was reading, I think, the New York Times article where uh, Fox's counsel said to Rupert Murdoch, he didn't lay a hand on you. And (laughs) Murdoch said, I think he did. And I think he has a different opinion about that. And Justin Nelson, the lead attorney, said, yeah, I do. And so they 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 saw the writing on the wall that this was actually an egregious act of misconduct on their part and on the part of Fox News staff. And there just wasn't going to be a reason to fight this out in court. Ari, were you at all surprised at the settlement and the dollar amount? I was surprised by the dollar amount. In fact, at this point, I'm doing some math and seeing if Nicholas Salmon has more money than Dominion at this point for all the lawsuits he's won against various media agencies. But there should be some accountability for whatever went on here. But that kind of dollar figure shows me that there's something else in disclosure they didn't want getting out there. We've already seen a lot of stuff that was put out over the course of the lead up to this. And I'm also frankly surprised that I got to five minutes before the trial was about to begin. And then that's when the settlement came in. Usually these things are done way in advance. What was coming that all of a sudden this dollar figure is out there? I mean, two hour delay right when a trial is about to start. That's not standard operating procedure. That's not usually how these things go down. So I'm kind of curious, was this a I mean, I would love to see that non-disclosure agreement. I would love to see what's there because I'm kind of curious what else that's hiding. (laughs) You don't think there was see my read on this, at least partially, was. Uh, Fox just recognized the massive negative PR value of having their hosts had to go up there on the stand and talk about what they knew and what they said in at odds with what they knew. I mean, that's just horrible for their bottom line. It seemed to me that it seemed to me like that was the calculation, not as much the damage uh, owed, but the potential more damage to their own brand. You didn't you didn't see it that way, Ari? 
I saw it a little differently. I went back after our last time talking about this, actually, and was reviewing some video footage. It wasn't all the Fox News hosts who were doing this. Granted, they all saw it where they were all on that text line. I mean, I don't want to name names of which ones were the most into this, but a lot of the bigger names really weren't the ones talking about this. It was more, especially if you read what's come out, they were the ones who were saying they were pushing back on it and they weren't talking about it so much on their show. So would it have been embarrassing for the company? Sure. But I don't think all the hosts were in on this whole thing. I don't think they were going full bore with it. But I think that really this would have been a huge embarrassment for the company, like you said, of having the hosts up there day after day after day. How much more is there to come with the other lawsuits that are pending? Rakeem, do those all just settle at this point and it's just a question of dollar signs? Is that really what we're talking about here? Or do you think the individual cases are all distinct? They're all distinct in that the motivations of each of the parties for pursuing the cases are distinct. And so I suspect what we'll ultimately see is a range of outcomes, which could include a trial for the other company, which seems to want to go the full mile, the full distance to make sure that Fox is held accountable. It seems to me we're just talking about how big the award was. It also seems to me that, you know, a lot of times in these cases, if um, there aren't other considerations, you may be pulled off for a lower dollar value. I thought Dominion probably got three quarters of a billion because in their mind, let's say this is worth 200 million to them in direct reputational harm. And they thought, you know what, but we need to have this stuff said. And so really the buy off was buying the stuff not coming out. The fact that we don't go through this protracted discussion of how decisions get made and what gets to be news and how opinions get formed. And where is democracy in all of this? That, that to Mm -hmm. me is what I thought was the big shaper of the price tag, basically buying off their willingness to not have all of that stuff come out in public. Did you see it that way or am I missing something, Rakeem? No, that's always part of a case, right? It's not just the laws, the facts and circumstances, it's the appearances that a defendant has to undergo if they open themselves up to a trial and into in civil litigation. I mean, that's one of the reasons company avoid civil litigation as much as they can. And usually, to Ari's point, wouldn't have let it get this far and would have tried to negotiate something beforehand. But as you're suggesting, Andrew, the lawyers here representing Dominion are very good. Again, I'd say that both because they're my colleagues, but they're very good in the sense that they knew that to go through this process would provide them with additional leverage, ultimately in settlement. And that bore itself out. How much damage at this point do you think this carries for Fox News as a brand? Ari, the, you know, the, the listeners, the viewers, uh, I work at a Fox News affiliate station. Okay. Uh, so does this penetrate to their audience as having been a problem or is a problem in the future? What do you think? No, because the people who watch Fox News are still going to watch Fox News and they're still going to hate CNN and they're still going to hate MSNBC. And just like you saw with the Nicholas Sandman stuff, did that do a dent in the reputation of CNN or the Washington Post or the New York Times or anybody else? No, it's the same exact thing. The people who are your fans are always going to be your fans. Um, It's also interesting. I see a lot of people on the left saying Fox is never going to cover this. It was literally on Fox's front page yesterday. Mm -hmm. Was it the main story? No, but it was up there. So at least they're covering it. I don't recall. I don't want to speak out of turn in case I'm incorrect about this, but I don't recall any of the outlets I mentioned before with any of the other lawsuits they've dealt with actually having those on the front page of their outlet before. So at least they're owning it. And, you know, certainly one of the sort of it could have been worses in the situation is, you know, there could have been a requirement that they're 
their hosts or commentators would have had to go on the air and say things, you know, specifically maybe worded a certain way about this, which doesn't happen. But I agree with you. I was pleasantly surprised, you know, to see that, um, you know, Fox was covering it, as you say, not maybe not the big, huge front story, but it was definitely covered. Rakeem, does it damage the brand? Or are you with Ari that, you know, the Fox watchers are the Fox watchers and the CNN watchers and, you know, never the three shall mingle or any of that kind of stuff? <laughs> I agree with Ari. I don't know that it has much of an effect on their brand, I do think it will reshape their conduct. I suspect that there will be a serious number of discussions inside of Fox figuring out how to avoid something like this again. This is a massive settlement, right? We shouldn't, I mean, yes, Fox is a large company, but as I said, this is one of the big bills out of Mr. Murdoch's pocket. And as a consequence, they will reform themselves in ways that may not immediately appear evident, just as we didn't know sort of the conversations that were happening that led to this controversy to begin with, but they will operate differently than they have before. This wasn't worth it. Let's put it that way. This was not worth it. Does it shelter Fox at all from the effort by even more right news outlets to run against them, you know, with somewhat more conspiratorial theories about things? Does this kind of shield them from that kind of stuff at all? Do you think, Rakeem, you know, that like those folks are going to be more sobered by this now, too? Oh, crud, we could get sued as well. I hope so. I don't know. So <laughs> it's one of those situations where you would think that after having this experience, they will have learned their lesson and and really, as I said, reevaluate their policies and think critically about the kinds of information that they're sharing and make sure that they are sharing things that they feel comfortable backing up. At the very least, I'm sure they won't text about it afterwards if they don't believe the information that they're sharing. <laughs> well, you know, there's there's the what we do and then there's the what we put in print or digital uh, versions of that. Right. Exactly. Ari, do you think um, other, you know, more extreme uh, outlets are going to be more paying attention to this and thinking, oh, crud, we got to watch ourselves as well here. Does it shelter Fox at all from the efforts by those folks to run against them on the right, so to speak? No, I don't think so. In fact, I'll use an example from the left. I mean, literally last week I saw Jen Psaki out there accusing Republicans of wanting to defund the police and no comments whatsoever about the Democrats trying to do that for the last, oh, what was it, five years, something like that, even before the riots of 2020. So I think opinion is always going to be opinion. And I think people in an effort to get clicks and an effort to get ratings are going to keep pushing that edge because it's such a cutthroat competitive world right now where, I mean, look at Fox. Fox's top rated show is what, 8 million viewers a night. There's 350 million people in America. You're still looking and they're the top rated cable news network. Everybody's getting their news from wherever they want to get their news, if they're getting their news at all these days. So everybody's killing themselves to be the next big thing to get the most amount of clicks. And I think people are still going to say dumb things in order to do that, whether they're on the right or the left, until somebody catches them. It's like you're an American. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you know, us, you know, it's so weird. There's a, there's a different slice of this question that I'm interested in what you guys think about. Obviously, we have a deep rift. There are people who have no questions at all about the past presidential election. There are people who are absolutely sure that the election was stolen in a hundred different ways. And then you might say there are people in the middle who maybe and I put myself in this category. You know, I had questions at the time. Those questions have been answered. I believe that though there might have been some elements of impropriety, they're pretty small scale. And certainly this question about whether the voting machines, you know, were fraudulent, because look, the truth is always a defense in defamation cases. If Fox could show that there was any truth to the story, they would have done so. They couldn't. That's all over. Does it persuade anybody? You know, the people who are 
either prone to or heavily deny the election results, do you see it persuading them at all to say, oh, maybe I ought to consider, you know, for a moment. Ari, I'll come back to you because I know you're kind of a pessimist in this area. I don't like the term election deniers uh, just because I don't like to form into nouns uh, what people think about themselves or other ideas. But still, okay, election deniers, are any of them listening to this? So it's a complicated question to answer. Let me explain. You still have people denying the 2016 election. You still have people denying the 2000 election. People who are who lost are going to keep being bitter about losing. Look at any time there's a Super Bowl. Oh, I hate that call. Oh, my God. I can't believe they made that call. I mean, look, it's something that's part of being an American. However, you look at this specific case for me in the 2020 election. I never say there was voter fraud. That's not what I say. But I say there were some things that I thought were inconsistent. And one of the examples is in Wisconsin. In Wisconsin, the Democrat Party worked very, very hard to keep the Green Party off the ballot because in 2016, that actually took away a lot of votes from the Democrat Party. You're seeing some things like that happening right now. We know that there's some shenanigans in Washington with ballot harvesting, but the thing is, it's legal. It's all been legalized. So if people have an issue with these efforts, and I've been screaming and yelling at the Republican Party in Washington state, you got to do that ballot harvesting if you want to win. Otherwise, you're never going to win again because it's all legal here. Dinesh D'Souza's video, I watched every minute of it. And at the end of it, I went, and? Because in so many of these states, that whole process has been legalized. It's not fraud when it's legal. It may feel unethical. It may be icky. But that is the system we have in a lot of these states. And if people want to change it, then they got to work within the system to actually do it, to actually win. And then they might be able to change it. Yeah, as, a, as an ethics professor in my old days, I'm a big believer in avoid doing the icky things. But as you say, if the icky thing is legal and that's what it takes to win, you know, you may not agree with the rule, <laughs> but the rule is there. Rakeem, what kind of effect does this have going forward on those questions? Well, let me answer that, but let me go back just a second. I think there's a difference between saying that the rules are rigged in one person's favor or another. And as a consequence, you got to kind of play the game. The denialism after the 2020 election was actually about whether or not machines had falsely counted votes, that is, by switching the party for whom someone voted to the other candidate, whether or not additional votes had been put into the machines. I mean, this was, I don't know how many of you watch Scandal, right? But it essentially was the defiance narrative that showed up in Shonda Rhimes' show. It was like there was a machine in Ohio. If you put this chip in it this way, then it does something different. That's straight up fraud. That's not rules are tilted in one way or another. That is, people are actively cheating. So the conspiracy that we're talking about, I think, is different than the ones that you all are labeling. And the question is whether or not people who believe that, that independent election officials around the country conspire to deny Donald Trump the election, whether or not they will be persuaded by this. And my answer to that is Probably not, <laughs> because they weren't swayed by facts the first time. There were plenty of facts that existed prior to this lawsuit being filed that would have demonstrated that we do not have chips that can be switched out one for the other to change your vote to make sure that uh, Joe Biden becomes the president of the United States in these critical districts and only these districts. And somehow this statistically, it doesn't align. Um, we had plenty of evidence about that beforehand. So I just want to draw a distinction between the kinds of things that I think you all are talking about. I can kind of agree with Ari oh, that's, that that's fair. Rules by the way. I appreciate that. Yeah. Rules yeah. are the rules. So you play by the rules. And of course, rules are tilted in one way or another. And the 2000 election is an example of that. Are we counting the hanging chad or not? <laughs> if we're not counting the hanging chad, one person wins. If we're counting the dimples and other things, then maybe another person wins. But that is entirely distinct from saying 
the place where you placed your uh, mark for the candidate that you want was moved somehow by a massive fraud. And and I, I will say from just personal sort of anecdotal experience, you know, I watch a lot of county commission and city council meetings and I can tell you, you know, here in my local area, there are people who periodically show up at those meetings and talk about the need to have a colloquia to figure out the machines and whether the machines are stealing votes from us. And, you know, so there are clearly still people who believe that. And I don't think they're likely to be moved by this. Uh, last on this subject is and <laughs> I'm going to ask this question, but it's going to be hard to ask it without laughing halfway through it. Does this to any degree either undermine former President Trump's ability to say the things that he says or change his willingness to say the election was stolen, the election was rigged, everything was taken away from me? Ari? No, not at all. He can still say whatever he wants to say. He's still going to say whatever he wants to say. And the question is, does it undermine his supporters? In my opinion, before D.A. Bragg indicted, Donald Trump, before the grand jury indicted Donald Trump, he had actually lost a lot of support with the Republican Party. A lot of people came rushing back to him who weren't there before saying, oh, I guess he's right. They're really after him. They're after him for this. They're after him for that. When it looked like before that Ron DeSantis actually had a chance against him. Now, I'm more of a DeSantis kind of guy. I have been. I've been very, very clear about that. He's the kind of guy I want because it's all the policy without all the crazy. And I'm kind of off the crazy train. A lot of people in the Republican Party have felt that way. But if Donald Trump's narrative is they're after me because they're after you, what happened in New York played into this and just watch his next few speeches. It'll be all about that. You're not even going to hear about this anymore. It's going to be pivoting to that because the left has given him something new to talk about. Final thoughts on the subject, Rakeem? I agree. I mean, it won't limit his ability to engage in his crazy. Whatever it is he wants to share, he'll be able to share and media outlets, not just Fox, but MSNBC and CNN. Everyone else will cover it and say this is what Donald Trump has said about the election upcoming or prior. Uh, What I do think will change, however, is the ability for the on for the commentators to support that narrative as vigorously as they did in the past. I mean, clearly, based on the text messages, they felt forced in some ways, cornered into advocating a theory that they did not believe. I shouldn't even call it a theory, advocating a lie that they did not believe. I don't think they'll be inclined to do so this time. Oh, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, the 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 willingness to say, you know what, maybe we don't have to go along with this this time because that burnt us the last time we went along with it. When we come back, we're going to talk about the implementation of a new rate structure for electric rates in California where people at the upper end of the income spectrum pay more and people at the lower end pay less and what that means and whether that's appropriate or not here on The Debate. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. 
Welcome back to the debate at Newsweek. My guests today return repeat offenders, Rakeem Brooks and Ari Hoffman. Um, let's start with you, Rakeem. We've got California just implemented a three-tiered rate structure for electric rates. And the basic gist of it is if you make less in the 20 to 60-ish thousand range, and then there's a 60 to like 180 range, and there's a 180 plus range. And basically, the people who make one range of income, they pay a certain rate. The people who make the next tier up pay double-ish, and the people who make the next tier up pay triple-ish. And this looks an awful lot like progressive taxation applied to a pricing structure, because it is exactly that. The question is, why would they do this? Is this appropriate? I wanted to get your thoughts first. So I'll measure its appropriateness by its effectiveness. This is a public utility, and so they can come up with all sorts of schemes for funding it. And the question is whether or not it's funded to provide electricity to the citizens of California. And if it does that effectively, more effectively than any other pricing scheme that they've had before, and in addition to that, has egalitarian benefits, that is to say that people on the lower end of the spectrum pay less than people on the higher end of the spectrum who are capable of paying more so that folks are paying proportionally, the people on the lower end are probably still paying more, but overall that they're saving money. I think that's a good thing. I think it's good all around, but the measure of it has got to be that the grid is sustainable, that the provision of electricity remains reliable. Uh, And if that's the case, then I support it. But I haven't looked into it enough to know why they decided to move to this particular um, pricing scheme. I'm going to give you a chance to pre-respond to what I expect to be a fairly fairly vociferous (laughs) critique from Ari. (laughs) How can it possibly be right to tell people that they have to pay more for the same product just because they earn a higher income level? Rakeem? Well, as I said, it's a public utility and therefore a product of the commons. And as a consequence, the state can say in order to opt into this thing, this is how we're going to measure your we're going to measure it by your ability to pay. We have all sorts of regimes that work that way. For instance, if you happen to we provide school lunch, right? If you are a working class person or a poor person, and as, as I was, you walk in and they give you a ticket and your ticket allows you to acquire your school lunch, which is part of the commons. If you, in fact, have more money than that, you get a different ticket, which causes you to pay reduced lunch. And if you can afford it so that the whole system can work, you pay full freight. There's nothing extraordinary about this. I know we always like want to go back to basics and fundamentals, but in the American scheme of pricing, this is not odd or bizarre. It's not socialist. It has existed with us for a very long time as a way of making sense of it. So that I think the only meaningful critique of it could be if, in fact, the numbers just didn't add up. All right, Ari. <laughs> I can see it on your face. Um, <laughs> I'm going to take this in a totally different route and disagree with Rakim on one word he used, which was that the thing is reliable, that the grid is reliable. You're talking about a place which has rolling blackouts, rolling brownouts, mandated blackouts, mandated brownouts. It's not reliable. So that's number one. And you looked at what just happened where you had record snowfall, just completely devastate California. There was this video that one of their counts, one of their congressmen put online, where you just see millions of gallons being dumped into the ocean. This is a place with drought. It's either boom or bust in California. And if California had used its tax dollars effectively to build reservoirs, to build dams, which would be hydroelectric powered, which would provide power, they wouldn't have to be buying their electricity from me in Washington state. Here's something else. All these rich people we keep talking about right now, they're paying to heat their swimming pools. They're paying more to heat their swimming pools. They're paying to charge their electric cars. And you know what they can do? 
they can buy solar panels, which will go on the top of their house and go energy independent, just like the left wants, and then charge their electric cars and be totally off the grid. And then what's going to happen is California is going to say, wait a minute. I don't understand. We had all these rich people paying. Now they're not paying anymore. Now we need to charge the people who aren't paying as much more money so we can maintain this crappy grid that isn't working anymore. That's where this leads to, especially when you consider how many people have moved out of California. What was it? Half a million in the last three years said, get me out of here. They lost congressional seat. Those rich people are not going to keep sticking around. And what's going to happen, like what always happens, is they say, oh, we're doing this to help the poor. And then the middle class and the poor end up shouldering the bill when the upper class moves and leaves. This is just like taxing people to solve climate change. Yeah, when they leave the funding source, right, when they decide to just completely go away from it or, as you say, invest in solar panels. And now we start paying them to produce the electricity. I don't know whether there's any sort of net metering slice or version of this. But, you know, I suppose if there were, it would say something like we're going to pay this much per kilowatt hour if you're making more than two hundred thousand dollars a year. And we're going to pay this much per kilowatt hour if you're making less than that in some I don't know, effort to try to incentivize people at the lower end of the scale to purchase solar panels. But yeah, if the, if enough people flee the system itself, then the funding isn't there at all. I am curious, though, Ari, because I noticed you didn't specifically weigh in on the question. Is it OK? I'll just say my, my cards on the table. I think it's crazy to charge people different prices based on what they earn as income. The whole point of money is that some people make more and some people make less. I'm not a big fan of progressive taxation for a whole variety of reasons, for you know a lot of reasons. But when prices suddenly are dependent on what people make, it undermines the basic meaning of money. If you pay more because you earn more, what, I'm going to go to the gas station and I'm going to pay you know $10 a gallon for gas if I make over 100 grand, and I'm going to pay $5 a gallon if I make 50, and I'm going to get... You know, it's going to be $2 a gallon if I'm below. It just That concept is baffling to me, despite Rakeem's pleas that this is completely normal, very American, and you see it in every cafeteria in America. Ari? Just look at my gas station right now. We're at over five bucks a gallon here in Washington state because our government here decided to try a tax like this. And what they said was it's not going to raise taxes on anybody. It's not going to raise the gas tax. The gas tax is up close to 50 cents a gallon. They tried this insanity here in Washington, and all it's doing is taxing everybody, especially those working class people who need to put gas in their lawnmowers, who need to put gas in their trucks, who need to pay for all that kind of stuff. Those farmers cannot afford it anymore. And that's exactly what this kind of thing is going to be. It's not going it's it's what it's going to do is really it's just theft. It's saying we want your money. We want to redistribute it. And let me ask something else. Anybody in California going to give up any other tax bracket because they always say, hey, wait a second. You know, when we pass these progressive taxes, because our taxes right now are so regressive, you're going to give up any other of the other tax revenue that's out there? No, of course not. It's just another way to try and get money from the wealthy. Rakeem, I can see it on your you face. You won't be surprised that I'm going to disagree and push, <laughs> yes, push back. So let's just start here. I was just with my alma mater this past weekend. There is one price tag to attend this university. You, of course, pay a different amount, depending on whether what your parents earn. Right. No one thinks there's a problem with that at all. In fact, we think education is a common good. Well, people can't see Ari's frowning his face. (laughs) (laughs) 
Most of us do not believe that providing working class and poor kids who come from less advantaged families a common good, which is a common benefit, education, a different price than someone who could pay full freight for it for the total benefit of the university to be a fundamentally bad thing. I'm putting aside all sorts of questions about student loans and price inflation because of it. I'm just saying whatever the normal price is, people believe in scholarships and ways of creating greater access. This is a common good that we are talking about. And so we have schemes like this. I should I should stop calling it schemes. I've already bought into the language. All I mean by it, schema is what I mean. We have patterns and ways of doing this that are common in our society. And where I push back on Arias, and this is why I started the way that I did, because I knew that this was going to be a game he was going to play with me. The grid does suck. Absolutely. And so that is why I start from the place of, does this make it better? Do we have now a pricing structure that will improve the provision of electricity in the state of California? And if factually that proves not to be the case, I'm not looking at other different scenarios and whether or not taxes go up and whether or not the rich leave. If ultimately it proves not to be the case, and I will come back here and eat crow and say, look, this was a terrible idea. Maybe we should never try it again. But I think California has got to do something. And what it's forcing itself to do is to rely on its more affluent citizens to help think about this grid as a whole. And it's the only thing that really can be done. One interesting, I I didn't mention it because I I just kind of didn't bring it up, but one interesting point that the both of you agree about is that a key slice of this question is, well, does it work? (laughs) You know, does this thing work? Uh, Both of you seem to think no, but at least that's different from, well, is it fair? You know, is it just? Rakeem, I do want to ask you the question, though. I understand the argument about education. And there's, I think, an argument there to be had in the sense that this rewards the society. It's good for us to invest in people and make them capable. And so I can see the point of making sure that kids get food, for example, that they can become educated because if they're starving, they're not learning. I, I get all of that. But that's different than going down to the car dealership and seeing the the price for the rich people, the price for the middle income people and the price for the poor people on the car or on the box of Cheerios. Is this why I start off with the purpose that this is a public good? Uh, Jim Clyburn had a great line where he said there used to be a old Southern preacher who would say the first most important thing is the love of God in your heart. And the second most important thing is electricity in your house. Right. We have to remember what electrification meant to this country. Right. It is one of Lyndon Johnson's early defining things in the Roosevelt administration to ensure that electricity could reach the most rural areas of our society. This is a public good. We don't often think about it that way because we're so removed from what it meant to live in the dark ages in different parts of the country. But if, in fact, you did live in one of those places or presently do, electricity is extremely important to you and extremely expensive in ways that Ari and I would agree on. And so the question really is, how is it that we're going to make this work? Ari's point, which I understand, but I think it's an empirical matter, is that you set up this whole scheme and ultimately what it's going to do is just cause, you know, Joe and Monica to pay more. These are my working class people. I don't know why those are their names, but it's Joe and Monica. So it's going to cause them to pay more uh, over the long term. And we should see whether or not that's the case. And if it is the case that this doesn't work to provide them with low cost quality electricity to do things, great. But we're not talking about consumer goods, which is what you're describing right now. Now, Andrew, we're talking about public goods. So Monica the Riveter, Ari, she's not paying less for her Big Mac, but she is paying less for her electricity, for her education, for things that are essential, important, almost rights type things. We already do this. We subsidize everything for all kinds of people. Food stamps, for example, it's already out there. How is this really all that different? 
well, here's the thing. If you want to subsidize stuff, then you can go ahead and subsidize stuff. But why does it have to cost me more money to subsidize stuff? There's so much waste in the California budget right now. If they want to subsidize utility prices, let them. Here's something else. I'm a scholarship kid. I was at schools by somebody else's charity. And I remember that every single day. So one of the reasons I work so hard to raise money for the schools my kids go and to provide scholarships for the youth organizations I worked with is because I want to, in some way, pay that back. That has nothing whatsoever to do with me being charged a different price. I wasn't charged a different price. The price was the price. And somebody decided to subsidize Ari Hoffman. Somebody decided to contribute to that. They didn't say, hey, you know what? That guy over there has more money. Let me take it from him and give it to Ari Hoffman. They said, I want to give of my free will to help out Ari Hoffman. That's what happened. That's the difference here. It's a matter of, do you want to use the money that you took from taxpayers on something worthwhile like this? Or do you want to say, you know what? We don't like those rich people. We're going to punish them and take this money from them so that these people will have it. You have so much money, so much waste in the system already. Where's that high-speed rail I heard so much about? Hundreds of millions of dollars. Where'd all that money go? I haven't seen any high-speed rail going through California. I haven't seen anything. How many other projects can I come up with in California that are colossal waste of money? They keep talking about infrastructure. They haven't built anything to fix the electrical grid. If they wanted to subsidize us, they can subsidize us. But why does that mean they have to take money from somebody else in order to do it? And to me, on the basis of how much money they make, that's the part that it just continually grinds me about this. But uh, Rakeem, I'll give you the last word because uh, you are so good at last words. Justify this and maybe if you can defend the entire structure of California's governance system to Ari. Oh, well, that's a, it's a heavy Don't hurdle. Do an impossible task. <laughs> right. Here's what I would say. Why don't we allow the system to work itself out and then come back and revisit it and see where we stand? I think we're trying to argue first principles on something that is really about practicality. And these are serious people who try to think it through. It's not to say that they won't make mistakes, but they're good public servants trying to serve the needs of all Californians. And this is their, I assume, level best attempt to try and make that happen. And so I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. And if we come back and we say, well, the California grid still still sucks and it's uh, being leveraged on the backs of the poor and the working class, then you will have, as I said, an advocate in me for repealing the system. Well, as a resident of Florida, where we have already been beneficiaries of massive flight from California to our state, um, people fleeing the, you know, what they perceive as all the various issues. I would say in a couple of years, we're going to see even more of those numbers. But you may be right, Rakeem. I mean, that's why you let the experiment run. You know, the 50 states are supposed to be running their experiments and we'll see who comes out on the better end of it. Maybe this is the the big turnaround for uh, California power that we've all been looking for. When we come back on the debate, we'll talk about whether college courses and the specific readings or materials in those courses should come with trigger warnings for students who might be hurt or scared or have, you know, harmful effects of encountering material that they weren't expecting to encounter on the debate. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Welcome back to the debate. Interesting development at Cornell University. You had a young lady who was taking a Korean-American literature class, reads a novel that has a graphic sexual assault scene. She's bothered by that because she herself had some experiences in her past. Her friend says this shouldn't happen in an educational establishment. We should put trigger warnings. We should let people know what's going to be on the syllabus, what kinds of past traumas might be triggered in some of these readings or these experiences. The student assembly votes for this 100%. They are unanimous about it. And then the president of the university says, no, no, absolutely not. The provost is with her. And they say it's an infringement on academic freedom. And they say it's completely unacceptable. What do you think about the idea of having some kind of warning or alert that traumatic material might be in this class or in this assignment? Ari, let's start with you. I'm going to give an answer that I bet neither of you is expecting. I went to an all boys Jewish college and we had art as one of the classes and the professor in the class would always say, now, I know some of you are very, very modest. This one's going to have naked people in it. If you want to look away from this picture, it's not going to be on the test. It's not going to be part of the curriculum. It's just we're experiencing the history of art. It's part of the history of art. Just letting you know now, come back in five minutes. And they did that. The problem you get into is in today's society, you have what triggers anybody, and it could be everything. It could be anything. It could be nothing. Putting trigger water on anything starts opening you up to the slippery slope of, well, what doesn't get one? What does get one? Instead, why can't we just have curriculum transparency? I actually just finished a lawsuit where I was trying to get curriculums from Washington state of some crazy anti-Semitic nut job that was giving this critical race theory stuff to Washington state to train teachers and train and teach students. And they slapped a restraining order to not release the curriculum. I said, shouldn't we have full transparency with these curriculums? See everything. And if you have full transparency with the curriculum, you don't have to worry about the trigger warnings, because if you want, you can Google whatever book is there and say, is this going to be a problem? I know this book has sexual assault in it. I know this book has murder in it. I know this book has this in it. It might be a problem. Hey, can we talk to the professor about it? That's how adult do things as opposed to, hey, we have to label everything in case somebody has some problem with, oh, I don't know. They really don't like spaceships because they had a bad experience one time. So we can't do the spaceships. I understand people have trauma they went through and I'm cognizant of that. I'm conscious of that. I'm sensitive to that. But at the same time, everybody these days is so sensitive about every flipping thing. Where does it end? Alien probe trauma aside, Rakeem, um, is there a serious concern here about too much harm to students and you know, not letting them know in advance or undermining academic freedom by too much of a warning? And then they shelter themselves from the things that really they ought to encounter and learn to grow from. What's your general take on this idea? I actually thought this is one of the rare instances where the students have shown greater wisdom than their teachers. If I invite you to my home, you go to any restaurant. Major D comes up and asks, well, what's the first question they ask before they even ask what you want on the menu? Do you have any allergies that might affect the quality of this meal? We don't want to give you shrimp if it's going to send you to the hospital. The example that you gave was about a young woman who seemed to, if I understood the story correctly, had experienced sexual assault. And as a consequence, engaging with it meant that she might re-experience that sexual assault. 
I think what's happening in academic institutions around the country is that they're experiencing a great awakening with regard to the fact that these are no longer, how should I put this, laboratory experiments. The people of color and women are often on the receiving side of many of the traumas that we so freely discuss because they've never affected us. So suddenly you want to talk about what happened in the Drimco South, for instance. Well, let us talk about police brutality rather since I can I can talk about both those things. But you want to talk about either of those issues and you don't do a scan to figure out, is there anyone in this classroom whose family member was lynched? Is anyone in this classroom whose family member was actually murdered or maimed by police officers because of their encounters with them such that it might make it more difficult for you to understand the meaning, whatever the pedagogical intent of this material is, because you're going to be replaying in your mind what happened to you, your lineage, your family, et cetera. I mean, this is common sense, actually, to provide some sense of what the material might be about. What Ari is describing, I think, is a reasonable alternative. I, I don't understand the full parameters of it, but in terms of curriculum transparency, but that's clearly what the students were after. And so the responsible thing from adults would have been to say, hmm, maybe there's something that they're seeking that we can respond to differently in the way that Ari just did. Instead, what they did was try to shut down the conversation in defense of academic freedom, which makes no sense to me at all, because ultimately in this context, it's not the research context of the university, which is always where we're talking about academic freedom. It's in the teaching responsibility. And the teaching responsibility is to impart the knowledge that you seek um, to provide. And trigger warnings are going to help with that. But again, because we live in a society where certain privileged people did not realize that actually they were traumatizing people or leading them to experience certain things that were more familiar to them than even to the teacher. Um, we're in this weird place where suddenly, you know, we're debating academic freedom. This was going to advance the cause of education. So I think I disagree with both of you. And that's why I find this kind of fascinating, because what I hear from Ari is let them self-identify any problems that might be in the material based on transparency. And what I hear from Rakeem is, you know, let us help them identify in case there might be material uh, issues that we want to make sure they're aware of. My personal experience with this is uh, when I was in high school, my best friend took his own life. Obviously a horrible event for me within I don't know, a month or two of that incident, I went to watch the movie Dead Poets Society, a movie that ends very, very awfully with one of the students taking his own life. I had no idea that was in the movie. I was there. I actually happened to be there with uh, one of my good friends, his, the guy who killed himself, his girlfriend. We were just there as friends and we're, we're watching this movie and we're bawling in the theater because this is completely unexpected. And yet it was incredibly cathartic for me, for her, for us. And if I'd have been warned, hey, somebody kills himself in this movie, you might not want to see it. I probably wouldn't have gone to see it. Isn't there also a value in the art that first encounter without a preface transforms you? Same thing for a story. You don't know where it's going and you get to reading it and it's meaningful precisely because you didn't know what was coming. Are you kind of argue for the transparency? And I know and not every case is like mine. I know not every trauma is like that, but is there not also a value in the professor saying, you know, the intent of this is to have an impact on the kids? Absolutely. I'd agree with that. In fact, we can't live in bubbles. The real world does not protect you from what might trigger you out in the real world. I mean, look, I went to Jewish schools my entire life. Every single year came the Holocaust education and 
Most of us had people who went through that, not either people we directly knew, our grandparents, our great-grandparents. We knew about that. There was no trigger warning on any of that for us. And it helped us learn more about it. In fact, I'll just tell you one that happened. I just found this out recently. I had no idea. I thought I was the one kid in the class who didn't have family who went through it. I didn't find out until I was 39 years old that I had relatives who were killed in the Holocaust. and I had relatives who survived the Holocaust. And when I asked my father about it, he goes, why do you think you had so few cousins? I, that's just something that I had no idea. I learned about it later in life. And I wish I learned about it when I was younger, but we can't shield these kids forever, which is why I say transparency is the way to go. So at least you know what's there. At the same time, you can't go around walking on eggshells around everybody. How are you going to teach everything? Because something's always going to offend somebody. And it's important to showcase some of this stuff because you have to say, this is the reason we study history, for example, because we got to make sure these things don't ever happen again. We got to talk about these atrocities. We got to talk about how awful they were. We got to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Show all this kind of stuff so people learn how awful it is. And maybe somebody can share their experiences. I don't believe in shutting down the conversation, but I believe in more transparency so that we can have those conversations. Rakeem, I understand the idea about not traumatizing people and not sort of forcing them to have harm that, as you said, prevents them from getting the educational experience out of the material. But aren't there times where that first encounter, that bit of surprise, that unpreparedness for what you're going to see in a film or a piece of art or a work of literature actually is the crucial element of learning from that piece? I imagine hypothetically so. So I wouldn't want to exclude any possibility that an academic could create serendipity in their classroom around even traumatic experiences. But I guess I come from the perspective that many of these students are not actually being shielded from life. That was the sort of conceit of the article that I thought was outrageous. In fact, many of these people, I mean, most students, most people in life are actually experiencing all sorts of trauma all of the time. So shouldn't it be the role of an academic institution to help you figure out how to process that trauma, including being respectful (laughs) of the idea that perhaps you come to the university knowing something actually about life, that is informing how you approach your education. And so, you know, even the way Ari is framing it is foreign to me because when I walked, when I walked up to Brown university for the first time, I came, what does Bruce say? When I enter a thousand enter with me, 10,000 enter with me. I came with a range of experiences that no one had coddled me, right? I came to the university. In fact, for the first time to actually have been coddled in my entire life, (laughs) right? But this was prior to any of these types of debates. So I show up at the university And it's there to provide me with an education. And to me, the thing that we should be doing with students is respecting that experience and saying, okay, how is it that the education I'm going to provide you interacts with that? Now, to maybe even further to Ari's point, of course, it's crucial that we deal with the difficult and dark things of our history. And I actually believe that if you told someone, hey, this is going to deal with a difficult subject, many people would opt in for exactly the reasons that he's described. You both have eloquently provided what should have been provided, and maybe it was, but it just wasn't covered in the article, but what should be provided by any academic and educator. What I'm about to tell you is difficult and hard, right? All of us actually are probably taking communications classes, right? So what do you do? You don't just come and say the hard thing. You say, what I'm about to tell you is difficult and hard, right? In fact, you may have experienced this personally, But there's a reason I have to communicate this to you, because I believe that ultimately it will lead to your healing. It will lead to your education. It will lead to you having a more fulfilling experience after I share the information with you. 
particularly in the context of literature. I think that so many of the great works of literature that I've read depend on some kind of an element of surprise, uh, that they shock or scandalize you with the plot twist. And if you knew it was coming, you'd miss out entirely on that experience. And maybe that's, I'm seeing things too much through that lens, but that's the lens. Last question on the subject for both of you. Let's start with you, Rakeem. I heard in Ari, and I know I have this same thought myself, this sense, fear, worry that somehow... We're just coddling people into weakness, that we're not letting people be tough enough by encountering the difficult and challenging things. Do you have that fear at all for where we're heading with things like the request to have trigger warnings on materials for classrooms? No, not from the request for trigger warnings. I do think that there are circumstances in which we are too easily acceding to the appetites and opinions of 18-year-olds. That's why I started off the way that I did, that this was a rare example where the students were showing greater wisdom than the teachers. Here, they seem to have made a considered judgment. We have a classmate who's experienced something. We got together and we talked about it. We put together a resolution. We consulted others, other experts on the subject before we made our proposition. That is actually quite elevated. And to receive a simple no without deep explanation and interrogation and um, a conversation Um, seem to me to be dismissive to a fault. And so there are instances, but this just isn't one of them. I actually read that more as when the student assembly is completely in agreement, that's concerning. I mean, I've never heard a student assembly be so much in agreement about that kind of group think had as much concern for me as the unilateral response by the uh, the president. But why assume that it's group think if all the students got together and said, actually, everybody here should have an equal right to vote in student elections. That should be unanimous. Right. It holds to a value that we believe in democracy. Agreed. The only thing I think you're actually confronting here is that there's a value that they're holding, which is that everyone deserves an equal access to this education on terms that would allow them to most benefit from it. And a trigger warning is going to advance that mission. Goal of the university is education. Everyone deserves it. This will advance it. And so that should be unanimous. Last thought, Ari, uh, particularly in the other direction on the question I asked Rakeem, which is, are you not being too demanding of toughness? Are you not being, you know, not kind enough in considering the concerns that they have uh, in not wanting to provide too many of these kinds of alerts or warnings or whatever and whatever else you want to say? I don't think it's not being kind or considerate. I think it's being how else are you going to learn? I'm not saying throw somebody in the deep end of the pool who has no swimming experience and say swim. But at the same time, I'm saying, what's wrong with having the transparency in the curriculum so you know what you're in for, so you can learn those kind of things? I am sure that if somebody showed me the public school education on the Holocaust, I'd say, this is complete garbage. You guys are all learning Anne Frank's diary. And Anne Frank's diary doesn't even talk about the Holocaust. It talks about hiding before the Holocaust, during the Holocaust. It doesn't talk about the concentration camps. It's probably one of the worst books ever to pick. You have curriculum transparency. Somebody like me, somebody like Rakim can come in and say, hey, by the way, Pick up this book. It's better. Pick up this book. The kids will find it more interesting. That one's terrible. I mean, think about some of the awful books we're subjected to at school. But at the same time, at what point do you draw the line and say, if we are sensitive to every single little tiny trigger that these kids have, they're never going to learn anything because everything's going to trigger them. And in this society, they've been told that's okay. Well, the one thing I heard in all of the comments today on this particular subject was we at the very least want to make sure that we have teachers who are interested in their students, interested in their, uh, we always call them kids as a teacher. It's just a, <laughs> it's a, it's a silly term. Maybe what it is, what we said, uh, want to see them grow and learn and experience. And ultimately that is the goal that we're trying to accomplish. How best to do it? Well, we don't all see it the same way. Ari Hoffman, Rakeem Brooks, as always, gentlemen, thank you so much for a great conversation. I really appreciate it. I'm Andrew Tallman for the debate at Newsweek. We'll see you next time. 
being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. It's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.